if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 is where we're going to be. And if you're new to the Bible, Acts is in what we call the New Testament, which is a collection of writings about the person and work of Jesus. This is in the the last part of your Bible. So near the end, Acts 17 is where we're going to be. Um, While you're turning there, let me just say this. If you're here and you would consider yourself someone that isn't a follower of Jesus, man, we want to especially say thank you for being with us. Uh, We really do mean it when we say that it's, it's okay to not be okay in this place and it's okay to not be a Christian. We actually want you to belong here in this community, uh, even if you don't believe like we believe. So we'd love to answer any questions or at least learn how to walk with you as best as we can. So thanks for being with us this morning. Um, As a Christian, I I experienced a monumental shift, just a, a paradigm shift in my own soul when I began to realize just through studying and reading, I began to realize that when Jesus saved me, Right, that's language that we use as Christians. Jesus saved me. When, he, when Jesus saved me, he didn't just save me out of my sin. He did that. But, but he also saved me into the church. And, and even more particularly, what was the shift for me was, it wasn't just that he saved me out of my sin and into the church. It's that he saved me into the church that is on mission as Jesus was on mission when he was living on planet earth. And so it's just this paradigm shift of like, the reason I am here is not for my own glory or for my own causes or for my own, just to kind of make the most of life. Like I actually exist on this planet as a Christian to make much of Jesus and to live on mission for him. That's why I'm here, which is why, by the way, when we baptize people, we don't hold them under the water for five or 10 minutes. Like, other than the fact that that's murder and that's really weird uh, and against the law, uh, one of the reasons why we don't do that is because as Christians, we're not like, hey, you're, you're saved now, so the work is over. Go tell Jesus, hey, for us. No, there's actually more work to be done. That's why when you become a Christian, you don't just get sucked right off the planet. You are here. I'm here. Uh, we've been saved out of something, but we've also been saved into something, and that's the mission of God. Now, when we say mission of God, what what are we talking about? Because I think a lot of us probably have a thousand different definitions of what the mission of God is. So very simply, we would say that we are here to push back darkness. And what we mean by that is two things. We mean gospel proclamation, and then we mean kingdom demonstration. So these two things, it's like gospel proclamation, that's opening up our mouths and articulating with words the beauty and power of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, what he did in his life and his death and in his resurrection. It's literally bringing good news to people who need good news, the good news of Jesus. But we also mean kingdom demonstration, which is this other reality of uh, now that we've been saved out of sin, we've been saved into the kingdom of God, and now life looks different for us. The way I think about money looks different. The way I think about marriage looks different. The way I think about singleness looks different. My sex ethic is now a, a kingdom ethic. So all of my life now is marked by, or should be marked by, being a part of the kingdom of God. And, and that actually includes uh, providing grace and social justice and hope and help for people in our cities or people in our world that are in desperate need. 
And this is what Jesus did when he was on earth. For the three years that he did ministry, he had his words and his works all about, here's why I came and what I was doing. And then he was healing the sick and raising the dead and doing all all of these miracles. So some of you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're wondering, well, where is Jesus right now? What's Jesus up to? I can tell you that Jesus isn't like on vacation on some, you know, faraway island just chilling. Jesus is actually in heaven and he's continuing the work that he did on earth, but he's actually doing it through you and I, through the church. So we are actually doing the things that Jesus did on earth by his power and by his spirit. That's, that's really what we mean when we say the mission of God, gospel proclamation and kingdom demonstration. Um, this was why we chose the book of Acts to preach through as, as a leadership team. We said, what, what could we talk about that, that really in the scriptures is gonna solidify and instill in the people of Frontline Church what it means to live on mission? And we said, the book of Acts. This is, this is the story of the mission of God advancing in the first century. This is the story of Jesus rising from the dead and doing his mission. Now, here's the problem. And I just, I just wanna say that there, there's, a, there's a problem and there's a tragic gap when we talk about the mission. Here's the problem. The problem is most of us, I think some of us don't know this, but most of us as Christians know that we were actually called into the mission of God. Like that's not new news to you. You know, yeah, I've been called and invited into the mission of God. The problem is an intellectual reality that we don't know that we're called to live as missionaries for Jesus. I think the problem is that we don't actually know what that looks like as practitioners. We don't know how to do it. Like we know we're supposed to, but how do you actually engage on mission? This world is complex. I mean, just think about the last five, 10 years, how much culture has shifted and changed. And it's like we're trying to hit a moving target. Like all these things are different now. Like the, the gender conversation's different than it was 10 years ago. And there's all these things. It's like, how do we engage in this interesting cultural moment that we're in faithfully with the good news of Jesus? We, we know we're supposed to, we just don't know how. That's one problem. Uh, The other problem is this. The other problem, maybe you don't feel this as much as I do, but I feel when I read the book of Acts, a tragic gap. Here's what I mean by that. When I look at the book of Acts, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible because it's just insane. I mean, the stuff that happens is unreal. Um, Let me just give you a couple examples. Like um, Acts 2, Peter, he stands up to a a large crowd. He preaches the gospel. 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day. 3,000 people. It's phenomenal. And then a couple chapters, or one chapter later, Acts 3, uh, there's a guy that is, is uh, unable to walk. Peter walks up to him. He heals that guy. That's awesome. A, a large crowd gathers. Peter stands up. He preaches the gospel. 5,000 people get saved, come to know Jesus. That's crazy. Then you get to the apostle Paul and Paul's just nuts, man. Like he's, he's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He, he gets to certain cities. He preaches one sermon and churches get planted. Now that, that's mind blowing. Like I planted a church years and years ago and it was not by preaching one sermon. That is mind blowing to me. How does he do this? And then we're gonna get to this in a couple chapters later, but in Acts 19, Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and he preaches such a powerful sermon. The whole city erupts in a riot and revival breaks out because all these people, they're, they're throwing away their idols and they're burning their magic books and all the people in the city that were economically supported by making idols and making magic books books. They're all like really upset because now they're out of a job because so many people became Christians. And, and this riot erupts all from one sermon. 
Like I've preached a lot of sermons. I've never had anyone like even like start a fire or flip over a car or do anything like that. Like, so here's what I mean. There's a tragic gap because Paul wrote Romans and I watched Netflix, right? The tragic gap is felt this way. It's like Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. I have a conversation with my barista that I've been engaging for a long time and building a friendship with. I have a conversation with her about Jesus, and now she acts weird every time I come in. There's a gap. Like what they were seeing and doing, like how do we do this? Because it felt easy here. It seems easy, and it feels in our experience not so easy. Well, here's what I want to show you. This is why I love Acts 17. Because in Acts 17, like, no one gets raised from the dead. No one gets healed. By the way, I love it when that stuff happens. I'm pro people getting raised from the dead, pro healing. I love it. But Acts 17, no one gets raised from the dead. No one gets healed. Paul preaches, and guess what? No church gets planted. But this, what he does in Acts 17, is a model for what it looks like for those of us that are followers of Jesus to live on mission and the everyday, mundane, difficult, complex realities of life. That's why I love Acts 17. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I think there's some stuff in here that will actually be really helpful for you to wrestle with when it comes to Jesus and Christianity. So a couple things I want to give you. Here's the first thing. What we learn from Acts 17 is that you should embrace where you are. If you're with me, go to to Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul, the apostle, was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy in the city of Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, this giant, this hill where a lot of the scholars and philosophers of the day would, would stand and debate things. It was, it was translated Mars Hill, right? This is Mars Hill. Um, and, and, and they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now I want to just kind of pause for a second, and I want to give you some background on what's happening in this passage. Paul is in Athens. Why? Well, here's what's so crazy about the story. Paul was never supposed to be in the city of Athens at all. It wasn't on his itinerary. It wasn't in his plan. Uh, Paul is on a missionary journey, but Athens wasn't on the list of places to go to. It wasn't in his intentions to be there. He, he, he didn't like watch this heart-wrenching documentary about the people in Athens and thought, man, I got to move there. I've got to get to that city. I've got to tell them about Jesus. No, none of that happened. He got there in many ways by what we might call an accident. 
How did Paul get there? Well, here's what happened. If you, I wish we had time, we don't, but if you were to read the first part of Acts 17, you see that Paul is in another city, the city of Thessalonica. And what Paul is doing in the city is he's telling people in the city about Jesus. And a lot of Jewish people start to get saved and come to know Jesus. And then some of the other Jewish people, they they get really upset and mad at Paul because he's ruining the Jewish religion, so they think. And so what happens is they start this big riot and they try to arrest Paul or kill Paul. So Paul, out of necessity, he escapes from Thessalonica and he goes to another city nearby called Berea. And what does he do when he gets to Berea? Well, he does what Paul does and he opens up his mouth and he starts preaching the gospel again. And Berea, even more people come to know Jesus. And this time it's massive. Like all these people start coming to know Jesus. But then the Jewish people that were really upset at Paul in Thessalonica heard that he was in Berea. So they actually travel all the way to Berea to try to kill Paul or arrest Paul. So once again, Paul has to escape for his life and he has to run. And where does he run to? Well, he runs to the city of Athens and he leaves Silas and Timothy. I don't know exactly why. If I was like, you guys run your own, peace, I'm out. But he, he leaves Silas and Timothy in Berea and he goes to Athens. And here's what we read. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So he, he's not even supposed to be there. He's just waiting around in the city till Silas and Timothy showed up. It wasn't on his agenda. It wasn't in his plans, but he got there. And here's what Paul does that's fascinating. He embraced where he was in the moment. And this is profound because like if I were to put myself in his shoes or if you were to put yourself in his shoes, what would you have done after that story and you found yourself in Athens? How would you have responded? Here's what I probably would have done if I were in Paul's shoes. First, I would have been kind of frustrated at God, if I can be honest. I would have been like, man, I'm, I'm trying to do what you're telling me to do. Like I keep telling people about Jesus in all these cities and it's more pushback and more opposition and more suffering and more persecution. Can't you make it easier on me? And here I am, like I've had to go from city to city to city and now I'm in Athens. This is just too hard. I think that'd been my first reaction is a little frustration towards God. And then the second thing is I think I would have checked out and just enjoyed the city because Athens was a really, really, really cool spot Really like cool, lots of uh, culture and diversity. It was a cultural hub for that entire region. Lots of philosophers, lots of uh, sightseeing to do, lots of places to eat, lots of art and music. It would have been a great city just to hang out in. And I think I would have just checked out and enjoyed the city. And here's what I'm trying to say. Mission would not have happened if I were in Athens because I wouldn't know really how to embrace where I was in this moment. And here's what I want you to see, that your ability, my ability to embrace where we are in the moment really is gonna tell us how we think of God. Like if God is not sovereign and and he really has no power or control over where we are and when we are, then it makes a lot of sense not to embrace the moment. It makes a lot of sense to be like, well, I'm just gonna enjoy myself because I'm here by accident. But Paul actually realized that he wasn't in Athens by an accident. It wasn't like God was up in heaven, just like facepalm. Oh man, this was not what I planned. Holy Spirit, Jesus, huddle up. Let's figure out what do we do about the mission because Paul's in Athens now and that just screws everything up. Any ideas? No, like the, this was actually the sovereign plan of God that Paul would be where he was. Here, here's what I started to realize as I was reading this passage, that mission starts by you and I learning to embrace the reality of where we are. 
And so much of it, like here we are trying to teach you, like here's how you present the gospel and here's how you talk about Jesus. And how you, but, but actually, you, you, oftentimes we don't even get there because the first barrier that we come up against is that so many of us have, have a, an inability to embrace where we are in the moment and therefore mission never even gets off the ground. Here's how this happens. Like our inability to embrace where we are, it crops up in a lot of different ways and the way we check out crops up in a lot of different ways. Let me just give you a few. Now, one of them is technology. And I'm not like anti-technology. Uh, I, I love tech. It's great. Uh, I'm grateful for all the advances that have been made. And I, I'm excited about the new ones that are going to come down in the next 10 years. But even though technology has allowed us to be even more connected than, than we ever are, I don't think anyone would argue that we're more engaged than we've ever been, right? I think everybody would just agree we're probably not the most engaged generation that's been around. Uh, if, if you look like just people walking down the street or doing these things, we're all just like enamored with our technology. And I do this too. Like I, my wife has told me too many times, hey, be where you are because I'm at home and I'm just glued to my phone and I'm not actually with my wife and I'm not with my kids, even though physically, spatially, that's where I'm at. So technology is one way that we check out. Uh, another way we check out is just by sheer drivenness and busyness. We're always going to the next thing and we're, we're driven. And I think that's, that's probably a good thing about our culture. But sometimes what happens is we fail to build in any sort of margin for mission or for us to have any sort of conversations with people that are hurting or need Jesus or, or someone to talk. Like we just don't even have the margin for it because we're always thinking about the next thing. Another way we check out is idealism. And here's what I mean by idealism. It's like, well, I, I never planned on living in Oklahoma. Or I don't, I, I don't want to be in this particular neighborhood. Or I don't want to be in this particular part of the city. And, and if I could get to this particular part of the city, then I would start to live on mission. Or, or maybe you're single and you're thinking, when I get married, things will settle down and I'll be able to build in some rhythms. And that's when I'll start to live on mission. Or maybe you're married with kids like me and you're like, man, when my kids get out of the house, that's when I'll have the ability to be more present. That's when I'll be able to live on mission. Or maybe it's, you know, I don't know what it is for you. It's just this idealism of, of always wanting to be somewhere that you're not. And, and that actually hinders your ability to be present where you are. Mission can't happen when you do that. Recently, I was talking to a guy at Frontline South and he said something profound to me. He said, yeah, I, I work downtown, I'm a lawyer downtown, but I live in South Oklahoma City. Like many of you, he was driving past uh, Frontline South and coming here. And, uh, and he was like, I just, I just had to wrestle with the reality that I'm, I'm a Southside guy. And I don't wanna be a Southside guy. I wanna be a downtown guy. That's where I wanna be. That's where I wanna hang out. But as I'm trying to live on mission, I'm realizing I've got to be where I am if I'm gonna see some missional traction. I was just so proud of him to say that. Even though he works down here, he's like, no, I, I need to learn to be present where I am. Another way we do this, checking out and not being able to be present is, is just self-absorption. And this is kind of a thing in our culture where we're so just enamored and absorbed with ourself for good or for bad, maybe stuff is going really, really terribly and we're so inward focused that we don't even see what's happening outside of us. So what happens to you and I if we fail to embrace where we are? Well, have you ever seen the video? I think it's like over a million plays on YouTube, so chances are you have. Um, have you ever seen the video of the woman in the mall and she's on her phone and she's walking and then she just straight up falls into a fountain? Have you ever seen that? Like, I'm not saying I would have laughed if I was there. 
I probably would have helped her, but it, it is pretty funny if you watch the video. So she's on her phone and she just walks straight up into a fountain, trips over and just like, not like kind of gets in the fountain. She just like, like inside of the fountain. And, and the crazy part of that story is she actually sues the mall because there are some, uh, some guards there that just kind of watched and <laughs> didn't help her. So, so she sued the mall for her inability to be present where she was. And here's my point. When you and I aren't able to be present where we are, here's what happens. We stop seeing what's so obviously right in front of us. We just don't see. And the most shocking thing to me about Acts 17, I mean, there's a thousand things I'd want you to know about this chapter, but like the thing that stands out is that Paul was not supposed to be in the city, but he's so present where he is that he's able to see what's going on around him. And that's where mission starts. Here's the second thing I want you to see. And that's see and feel reality. When you learn to embrace where you are, then you're able to give the gift of presence and see and feel what's really going on around you. See and feel reality. Look at this, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for for them at Athens, what did he see? His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You see what happened to Paul when he opened up his eyes and he, he wasn't on Twitter and he wasn't checked out and he wasn't frustrated at God for like, why the heck am I here anyway? He was just present where he was. He embraced it. God is sovereign. I'm here for a reason. There's, there's work to be done. He opens up his eyes and what he sees is brokenness and sin and idolatry all around him. And we'll, we'll get to what idolatry is in just a minute. But look at this, verse 22. Look how present he is, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Right, so this is interesting. Like Paul's walking around the city and he's observing and he's watching and he's noticing and things are sticking out to him and, and he's learning like these people in the city, they're very religious. They're very concerned about these, these idols, these gods that they've built. They're very, very dedicated to them. So what about idolatry in Athens? Well, the Athenian people, they, they believed in a multiplicity of gods, right? They're, they're polytheist. And, and, and their idea was that there were different gods over different spheres and locations, right? So you would have like the god of the sea, Poseidon, and you'd have the god of, you'd have the god of the land, and you'd have the god of the sun, and you'd have the god of love. There are all these different gods. And, and, and here's another thing that the Athenian people believed, that these gods were actually just like them, just infused with a little bit more power, but they were just like them. And what I mean is these gods were, they were selfish. They were vindictive. They were quick-tempered. They were petty. And anybody ever read Greek mythology in high school or college or just for fun? If you've ever read Greek mythology, you know that these Greek gods, they're just, they're just like us with more power. They can, you know, throw lightning and stuff. But they're just as selfish and just as self-absorbed and, and just as petty and just as quick-tempered. And so what would happen is the Athenian people believed that if you were going to, for example, get on a boat and travel across the sea, you had no idea how Poseidon felt about you at the time. And so to ensure that Poseidon felt good about you, what you would do is you would sacrifice to Poseidon and you would do these things showing Poseidon, I love you, thank you, I need self, safe passage. So they would do something expecting to get blessed and have safe passage in return. 
That was the way the Athenians kind of saw these gods working. And so one guy apparently was like, all right, I think we've got all these gods, but what if we forgot one? <laughs> like, what if we left one out? So he just built one and, and he just titled it to the unknown God, right? This is like, you up there that I forgot, help us too and make sure that we're okay. So Paul, he's walking around the city because he's learned to embrace where he was. He was able to give the gift of presence and what he sees is brokenness and sin and idolatry. And listen, listen, this is where mission starts. This is where it starts. In short, you could say that the people in Athens, they were just searching for the good life. I want to make it across the sea, okay? I'm going on a date. God of love, please make this a killer date, right? Make me look way more beautiful than I really am. You know, I, I want to, I'm growing a crop. Please let this be great. They just, they were, they were pursuing the good life. And here's what I would ask you. Like when you stop for just a minute and you embrace where you are and you open up your eyes and you start to look at Oklahoma, what is it that you really see? What is it that sticks out to you? Like Oklahoma is amazing, man. Do you remember 20 years ago when, when people were down on Oklahoma? Like Oklahomans were down on Oklahoma. Do you remember that? They're like, oh, it's a lame city, like just tornadoes and stuff. We don't like it. And, and now like people are walking around with Oklahoma shirts and, and we've got the thunder now. So take that, you know, the rest of the world. And, and, and we're just like, we, we love it here. And, and there's, there's like the food scene in Oklahoma is amazing. I mean, every time I come downtown, there's a new restaurant cropping up like crazy. There's, th- this is a great place to live. I absolutely love being in Oklahoma. But here's what's so crazy. Athens had some cool stuff too. Paul, because he was so engaged, was able to see below even some of that, even deeper into what was really going on in the city. And if you were to just stop for a minute and look, what would you see if you went below the surface and saw past the city renewal and past the development and past all these things? What is really happening in our city? Well, here's what's happening in our city. There is man-centered religion like crazy in Oklahoma. It's just like Athens. We've got idols everywhere. It's just this idea of like, well, God is up in heaven somewhere and he doesn't really care about me. All he wants is that I keep the rules and if I keep all the right rules, then he'll love me and bless me. And so I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go to church a couple times a month and check that off my list. Got that. I'm gonna just try to, my best to be a good person and that's how I'm gonna have the good life. Man-centered religion. It's about how we can do these things to make him happy. When you look around, maybe you're here and you're going, no, actually what I see out there and in my own heart is idolatry. Tim Keller, here's how he defines idolatry. He says, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. When you stop and you look, what you realize is we're just like Athens. There's idolatry everywhere. It's all around us. And it's not just out there. It's in here. It's in my own heart. You and I, it's money and possessions, isn't it? You look to that and you go, man, if I just get another raise, like that's going to be the thing that makes me okay. That's going to be the, if I can get more possessions, if I can get, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be okay. Maybe for you, it's not money and possessions. Maybe it's power and prestige. It's people respecting you. It's people knowing your name. 
It's you having influence in the city. And that's the thing. Like if I could just get that, then I'll know that I have value. Maybe that's not it at all for you. Maybe it's, it's you just want the freedom to define who you are. Self-definition, right? Or self-expression. Like your idol is, is being free to express you. And if you ever feel like you're not allowed to express you, then you become very upset and very angry because that's what is going to bring you satisfaction if you can really just show the world who you really are. Maybe it's sex, Maybe it's sex. It's like, man, if I could just have more sex or have better sex or whatever it is for you, like that's gonna be the thing. I, I don't know what it is for you. I have no idea what it is for you. I know what it is for me. But the reality is this, everywhere you and I look in Oklahoma, there's man-centered religion and there's idolatry. There's brokenness all around us. There's sin. There are people that are hurting and the people of God are here. But rather than most of us being engaged and being present, most of us are just checked out. Mission can't actually happen because we're so checked out. Now, what if you're here and you're not a Christian? You're going, yeah, but that's actually like, I still believe that. I still believe if I can pursue X, Y, Z, then that's going to be the thing that names me and defines me and makes me okay. Are you saying that's not true? Here's what I would have you consider, um, that there's something in you that is craving a grand, a, a grand, beautiful, powerful thing that nothing in this world could satisfy, right? And so you're going to look and look and look and search. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just have you consider the reality that maybe you were made for something deeper and more beautiful and more profound than just like killing it for the next 30, 40 years on this earth and making something of your life. Listen to this. This is from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Humans feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, what's happening is there are people here in this room and there are people in our city, they're made for another world and they don't know it and they're looking to this world to bring them what only Jesus can bring them. And mission starts by us opening up our eyes and embracing that reality, seeing reality and stepping in. Idols, man, they can't actually satisfy the deepest places. And, and the natural outworking of idolatry is just insane. It never leads to more satisfaction. It just unravels all of life. L- let me read you this one last quote from uh, David Foster Wallace. He's not a Christian, but he had some just profound things to say. He's one of my favorite writers. Uh, he died in 2008, but listen to what he said. He said this, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he goes on to say this. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
Like what would happen if you stopped for just a minute and opened up your eyes and started to see that there are people all over our cities, maybe even this, in this room, and, and they're dying a million deaths trying to find this eternal satisfaction and something that won't give it. And here we are as the people of God, like we've actually been placed here for the mission of God. We've been placed here. We've got the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And, and it starts by us really saying, God, you've put me here. I'm embracing Facing where I am, and I'm seeing now, and I'm opening up my heart to feel what's really taking place. Mission has to come out of that. And then I'll just close with this. The last thing that we see Paul doing is very simply, he engages the Athenians with Jesus. I don't have time to read you the rest of the passage but it's profound. Actually, maybe later today, if you get a chance, just read the rest of Acts 17. It's profound how Paul does this. He goes to the Athenian people and he says, hey, you're religious. You're trying to, to worship all these gods. You're trying to pursue the good life. You're trying to, to, to get these gods to bless you. But he says, the real God is not a God that you can make with your hands. The, the real God is the creator of all things. He's, he's bigger than just over one sphere or location or, or thing in this world. But he's the creator and sustainer of everything. And he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need you to make him food. He doesn't need you to bring him sacrifices. He doesn't need you to do. There's nothing that he needs that he's coming to you for. He's self-sufficient. He's powerful. And then he goes on to say, and he entered human history as a man to draw close to you. And he died and he rose again so that if you're far from him, you might have life. And this is just beautiful. I would say that the, the message Oklahoma needs is really not more man-centered religion. Hey, do you wanna get God off your back? Well, then do this, do this, do this, and then you can get God off your back. Oklahoma doesn't need any more of that. Oklahoma doesn't need more advice. Well, here's what you should do and tweak this and do that. Oklahoma doesn't need more cultural Christianity, right? Yeah, just show up to church a couple, like that's what we, no, Cultural Christianity, Oklahoma doesn't need any more of that. And Oklahoma doesn't need any more disconnected, busy Christians that don't know how to engage and embrace where they are. Here's what Oklahoma needs. Oklahoma needs people that really love God as best as we know how. And sometimes that's not that much. But we really love God and we really love people and we're realizing that God has placed us where he's placed us on purpose and we open up our eyes and out of an overflow of, of our love for God and our love for, love for people, we engage by telling them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Here's how I'll close. What Paul does in this passage is awesome. He, he saw the need and he stepped in and it just reminds me, I can't help but be reminded of exactly what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus, he looked down from heaven and he saw the brokenness of our world. He saw what was really going on. He saw the, the idolatry. And I love that God did not write us off. Remember, he's self-sufficient. There's nothing that we have that he needs. He doesn't need us. And yet he saw us and he felt love and he felt compassion, and he felt mercy. And Jesus, rather than staying disengaged, Jesus entered human history as a man. He lived the perfect life that you never could have lived. And he went to a cross, and on the cross, he died in your place. And what that means is he took all of your guilt and shame and sin on himself, and he actually experienced the hell that you and I deserve to experience. And then he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And anybody, 
anybody who comes to him and says, I'm, stop, I'm, I'm gonna stop trusting in me and I'm gonna start trusting in you, anyone will receive forgiveness and love and be adopted into his family. That's the message of what, of what Jesus has done for us. And it's the message that I need. It's the message that you need. And it's the message that people in our cities all across Oklahoma need. 